How's this for starters? I'm going to begin a seven-week sermon series on sexuality by talking about my wife. (laughs) Don't worry. I've got it all checked out. My wife is what you might call omnicompetent. And what I mean by that... (laughs) They told you I got it checked out. She's omnicompetent. And what I mean by that is there's really nothing day-to-day that comes up in our household that she can't do. I mean, she can cook and she can clean, but she's also educated and professional, and she could work. I mean, she could go to work and make all the money, and I could be home not cleaning and not cooking. <laughs> she can sew. She can raise kids. She can educate. She's, you know, fluent on the computer. She does the bills. I don't do the bills. She does all the bills. I don't know how to do a bill. I write one check a year, if that. I mow. But she could mow. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's straight lines on the green stuff. It's... So she could do that. So day to day, there's nothing she can't handle. And some of you may be wondering, well, what is it I do? I do stuff, okay? This is not about me. I do stuff, lots of stuff, important stuff. But, but I mentioned Andrea's omnicompetence. Not to set her apart from others or to, or to make her look like she's an unusual woman, but quite the contrary. I'm setting her apart because I think, uh, or I'm, I'm mentioning her because I think most women are omnicompetent. Most people are omnicompetent. The things that come into our day-to-day lives, we're all generally able to do. We can just do these things. And so I mentioned her omnicompetence because... Rather, this is generally the way that Western culture defines or defends equality between the genders. Generally speaking, in our Western culture, men and women are deemed as being equal because we can do the same stuff. That's how it's been argued. Is that the same demands of daily life can be met by a man or met by a woman in a general sense, and because of that, we are equal and we ought to treat one another equal. Now, the challenge here is that because men and women are obviously different in some ways, this secular worldview has to figure out some, some, there's some delicate ways that the differences need to be recognized because all differences have implications. And so this is how the secular worldview kind of builds its argument. It, 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 it emphasizes one thing and it de-emphasizes the other. The thing it does emphasize are the areas in which men and women are the same. It emphasizes similarities. It emphasizes sameness. It makes the case, the world does, that you and I, men and women, we're all essentially the same. And they'll do it in a number of ways. One of the ways they do it is they say that gender is typically not a primary shaper of our lives. They'll say that our lives are shaped primarily or filtered primarily by other things. Your upbringing, your cultural context, your ethnicity, your faith, what your childhood was like. These things, they are what shape the way you view life. And gender is not a formative shaper in life. That's what, that's what the world will suggest or tell you. Because it's important. It's important that we're essentially the same if... Equality is based on competency. Because if we're not the same, and if the difference is not 
it is in fact fundamental, a fundamental difference suggests a fundamental difference in purpose. And a fundamental difference in purpose suggests that we are not omnicompetent. That there are some things about which I'm competent and there are some things about which I am wholly incompetent. And if we're different, and the difference is significant, it suggests that. So the first step of the secular worldview is to say we're all essentially the same and most of the differences that come to us are not differences that stem essentially from our gender, but they stem from other things like culture. So there's times when you'll say, well, this, this is what a man ought to do. And the secular worldview will say, well, you think that not because you're a man, but because that's what culture tells you men ought to think. Or there's times when you think this is how a woman ought to behave, and the secular world goes, no, that's what your faith tells you about your womanness. You see how they've indirectly gotten away from the gender, and they've headed down some other contextual path, because the genders need to roughly be the same. So let's get back to my wife. I told you earlier that she's omnicompetent, but that was built on a few assumptions, a few important assumptions. And one of those assumptions is, is that there is no inherent value of having any degree of true manness in the home. Because if there is, she's not competent because she makes a crummy man. Right? I may not make the best man, but I make a better man. Right? At least I, that's what I do. That's what I do. I'm a fairly marginal man in my household. <laughs> but do you see that? As long as we assume that there's no inherent need for manness in the home, we can assume that a woman is omnicompetent. And as long as we can assume in other areas of life that there's no inherent usefulness or requirement to have womanness, then we can say, well, we're all omnicompetent. We're all the same. We can do the same stuff. So that's the first way that the secular worldview works. Here's another way. It seeks to trivialize or compartmentalize the differences that it can't wash away through similarity. Because there are things at the end of the day that are just obviously different. They stare us in the face. Men and women are different. And on those cases, when when the secular worldview that's around us, this Western culture we're in, when it can't say, well, yeah, that's because of your culture, or that's actually because of your upbringing, or your faith, or that's just you being a silly Westerner, or whatever it is, when it can't say that and it's forced to deal with the difference itself, it will typically trivialize it or compartmentalize it. It'll say, this isn't a difference of essence, this isn't a fundamental difference of who you are, this is a difference of preference, this is a behavioral difference. This is just the way you you like stuff. So you'll find the same worldview that says we're essentially the same is also the one that says that men like beer, football, sex, Home Depot. Right? Women like talking, bubble baths with scented candles all around them, Jane Austen movies. That's what women like. Right? And you see, some for some reason it's legal to say those things because that all deals with preference. Your competency is not called the question there. That's just your behavioral preference. And so the world will compartmentalize our gender filters to say if, it, if and when we arrive at those places where we're truly different, it isn't this essentially fundamental difference. It's kind of a, a surface difference, a trivial difference. So I may look through a blue lens as a man on certain things of preference. I look through a blue lens at, at football, or I look through a blue lens at 
I'm a Lowe's guy, but a Lowe's, or whatever it is. Those are kind of preferential things. And women will look through their red lens at certain things, but we don't always look through those lenses. And on most things, and the things that are essential, the secular worldview will say, we step out from behind those lenses, and we all behave the same. You see, the, the dominant secular worldview, which seeks justification for equality between men and women based on competency, has to ensure that there is no significant difference between us. Because if we're different, we are not omnicompetent. There are stuff that I can't do, and there's stuff that I'm meant to do, and we can't get past that. I'm going to spend the next seven weeks demonstrating that this idea of gender, competence, equality flies in the face of God's revealed word. I'm going to say that not only are we different, but that our differences matter. It really shapes us. We really filter all of life through gender. So this is not about sex. This is about our sexual personhood. We're only going to spend one Sunday on sex. And you can see it. It's on the front. So if you just want to come back then... You can come back then. But I really think the big issue is not sex. It's our sexual personhood. It's redeeming the sexual person that God intended us to be. And we cannot step out from behind the lens of gender. I'm always behind my blue lens. I can never do anything that is not flavored or filtered by my blue lens. Men walk a certain way. We breathe a certain way. We talk a certain way. We hold a cup a certain way. Everything we do is done as a man. I've never in my life done anything as it. No one has ever looked at me and said, it just picked up the umbrella. He picked up the umbrella. Even if he's a marginal he, he picked it up. (laughs) And likewise for women, you cannot escape your womanness. You're always behind the red lens. It's significant. It matters. God created it. God intends for it to be part of who we are. It's so comprehensive. So we're going to spend seven weeks talking about how comprehensive it is. Now, I have two purposes over the seven weeks. The first purpose is to demonstrate to you from Scripture that our sexuality is, in fact, significant. To show you that God's Word has something to say against the secular worldview. That's the first position. But, you know, you can show what the Bible says and still not convince anybody it's best. So that's the second purpose. After we show this is what the Bible says, it is my hope that we can show that God's revealed Word to us in fact reflects reality. In other words, that His way is the best way. That living within and by uh, the, the tendency that God gives us is the best way to understand life and to understand one another. Now, whether you all agree with me or not, and I don't think everyone will, or whether or not I get everything right and I don't think I, I will, I think I'll certainly overspeak myself because I'm always behind the blue lens, right? I mean, I have to apologize right now. There's no way I can say what I'm supposed to say in a way that was specifically designed for red lens people to hear it. I'm a blue lens person. So I'm going to try. And there's times where I'm going to try to speak red lensy and it's going to sound lame. And there's times I'm going to try to sound red lensy because I, 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 I want to extend dignity and respect in every possible way. But you just need to know I'm behind my blue lens. So I'm going to overspeak or underspeak or 
do something at some point, and that will happen. And whether or not there's other contributing factors to our gender. This is seven weeks on possibly one of the most significant things of life. Can anything be more significant about ourselves than our gender and who we are? So I certainly can't say everything, and I certainly don't want to deny that good things have come from the concerns of the secular worldview. Some things have been set right. So I don't want to discount those either. But I do want to make the case that there is no one here, no matter how old or how young or how manly or how womanly, that is not unaffected or unscarred or unscathed by this worldview. Please pray with me and then we'll turn to Scripture. Lord, as we set out over the next seven weeks to examine the breadth of our sexuality, Lord, I pray that your Spirit would give it depth. Lord, because each of us is fixed in some ways and broken in others, Father, you know that we stand the same before you, and yet each one is unique. And so, Lord, I pray a special blessing of care of your spirits on my words, on the hearing of it, Lord, and on how your spirit ministers to us. Father, be with us now as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you will turn to Genesis chapter 1. We'll begin there. We'll be in Genesis 1 and 2, not only this morning, but all seven weeks we'll be in Genesis. Now, if you're not um, intimately familiar with the account in Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 is that, is that chapter in Genesis that gives you the whole seven-day creation, technically six-day uh, creation period. That all happens in Genesis 1, so... Genesis 1, it's on the first day this happened, on the second day, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. That's Genesis 1. Genesis 2 does not do that. It retells the story, but only through the sixth day. It assumes days 1 through 5 have happened. In fact, it picks up late in the sixth day in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 is concerned with the creation of mankind. That's what Genesis chapter 2 is. And so, in a sense... It's retelling the story. It's almost like an inset on a map. You ever blow a map up? You know, like there's Washington, D.C., and then on the corner of the map is a big map of Washington, D.C. Genesis 2 is a big map of the creation account of man from Genesis 1. And then Genesis 4 through Revelation is trying to explain what happened in Genesis 3. That's kind of how the Bible's written. But so Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, they retell some things, but they tell them from a different perspective and from a, a different degree of depth. And I, I think these are useful images to kind of understand the perspectives of Genesis. And I think these will be useful to understanding gender. Genesis 1 has a very high view of creation. If, if you're reading it, you will almost feel like you're outside of the cosmos. You're with God in heaven watching things being done. So somehow in Genesis chapter 1, I'm able to see the stars being formed and the moon set in its place. And I'm able to see that across the great cosmos, light and dark being separated. You see the distance that's occurring there? I have this this God's eye view. That's maybe where it comes from. In fact, all through Genesis 1 is this phrase, and God saw, and God saw, and God saw, and God saw. So it's a very God's eye view, kind of view from up there perspective. Genesis 2 is not that way. In Genesis 2, you're staring out at earth on the horizon. And you can see things. You see God putting plants in the garden. 
almost like you're looking out and you're seeing the fruit. You can feel the fruit trees of the garden looming over you in Genesis chapter 2. You can watch the Lord reach down and form man out of the dirt with his hands. You're there. It's very much a view from down here. You might consider it a man's eye view. And in fact, interestingly enough, there is no occasion in Genesis 2 where it says, and God saw. It just says, and man saw. So it's a different kind of perspective. And I think these perspectives are useful for us as we begin to to build for ourselves what God intends for men and women and how he justifies our equality. And so what I'd like to do is I'm going to read Genesis 1, 26 and 27. We'll talk about it. And then we'll move on to chapter 2. But this is what the verses 26 and 27 of Genesis 1 say. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Who is created in the image of God? Man? Is that who's created in the image of God? Is that what it says? What kind of man? I know it says man, but what kind of man? Man, man? Like blue lens man? Or human? Let me read 26 again. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the air. And then in 27, he says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. I think our first essential lesson from Scripture, it's actually the first lesson given from Scripture, is that man and woman are made in the image of God. And it is not on our competencies, what we can do, how good we are at something, how fast we can run, how much, how, whatever it is, it is not built on competencies that we equate our equality. It is built rather on the fact that we share our image with the Almighty God. That is where we anchor our equality and nothing else. Men and women are equal in essence. Because in essence, they are image bearers of God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Come, let us make mankind in our image and let them rule. Male and female, he created them. We are to understand one another as being created equal in the image of God. That should be enough. Frankly, that should be enough. The fact that the Western secular worldview shows up with this issue of competency, of, well, we don't really think we're equal unless we can do the same stuff, what it does is it does not express a faith in the ability of men or women. It expresses a lack of faith in our image of God. When we reach to justify our existence in other places, we're really saying we do not believe that this person or this gender or whatever, is an equal image bearer of God. That's what we're saying. And we do this all the time outside of gender. 
We judge the wino on the street as though he's not made in the image of God? Is that possible? We see someone who's unemployed. A man who's unemployed all of a sudden feels less. Why? Because the world says that's what it means to be a man. No. To be made in the image of God is what it means to be human. So every time, every time we seek to justify our value on any other place, but in the fact that we bear the image of God himself, we are in fact expressing a lack of faith. Now, by the way, I think this image of God perspective does much more than set gender equality right. I think it works across the entire breadth of human inequality. It tells the poor person he is equal. It tells the slave he is equal. It tells the uneducated they are equal. It tells the handicapped or the weak or the ill that they are made in the image of God. It tells the sinner that he's made in the image of God. It tells somebody who's trapped in depression, you are made in the image of God. You are as human now as Adam was, though fallen. This is where we need to anchor our equality. And I do think that if men and women treated one another as image bearers, we would not have the problems that we have. This gender crisis that we observe is because we've forfeited our belief in the fact that we're made in the image of God. That's the view from above. Let's look at the view from down here. Genesis 2, I'm going to read verses 18 through 20. Now, at this point, God has, uh, God has made the earth. He's made all the animals. He's even made the garden. He's made man, and he's placed man in the garden, and he's given the man work to do. Blue lens man. And this is what he says in verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. There's a few things. This is a perplexing passage, I think. And uh, we'll probably spend seven weeks dancing around elements of this passage. But there's a few things I think we can clear up. Some clarity here. And the first one is, is we should note that the kind of the, the buzz phrase there is, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a suitable helper for him. Is what the Lord says. Now, what I don't want us to do is, 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 is fall in, into error on what this is saying. This statement cannot mean that the problem here is that man is by himself. See, sometimes people read this and they're very quick to say, man's lonely. That's the problem. Man's lonely. If that is the problem, if that's the only problem, 
If everything about man, and this is Blue Lens Man, if everything about man, man is perfectly right, lacking nothing except for the fact that he's lonely, what would God have given him? Another man. He would have been given another man. He would have been given a companion. There's nothing lacking. This is not an issue of loneliness. If it was an issue of loneliness, Adam would have received Seth. I'm convinced of it. Something else is going on here. I would say another thing this is not, this is not an indication, I don't believe, that there's just too much work for one guy. It's like you know, naming the animals. Wow, oh, that's such a galactic problem. We need, we need to get more people here. That's not what's going on here. When you read the text, the, the sense that there's too much work never comes out of the text. So there is not, and some people will translate this phrase helper as companion, and this is where I'm going. That is not a sufficient idea because the issue is not loneliness and the issue is not workload. There's no indication from Genesis that there's just too much work. And if there was just too much work and that was the only problem with man, if man were wholly competent except for the fact that he was one, what would we expect? Another man. That's what we would expect. That's what we should expect here if that's the problem with it's not good for man to be alone. But I think what God is saying here is male by himself is insufficient. That when I look at the earth and I am determined to create something that wholly reflects me and all I have is a man that he is incompetent to reflect my image. That's what God's saying. This man cannot fully reflect the creative beauty of my personhood. My image and my likeness cannot be wholly reflected in this one-dimensional male being. That's what I think he's saying. And then there's this other, this other very complex issue of these animals. And we, we should ask ourselves why this is even here. Have you ever wondered, by the way, the bizarreness of the fact that on the, by the end of the sixth day, I want to tell you, this is what exists. All of the earth, all of the living organisms on the earth, all of the animals, to include their female partners, right? When God puts Adam to sleep, he doesn't put all of animal kind to sleep. He doesn't pull 1.21 trillion ribs out of all the species to make 1.21 trillion female partners of the animal kingdom. He doesn't. He pulls one rib out of one being. And so isn't this bizarre that God in his consistent creative passion would do this entire holistic system, male, female, male, female, male, female, all around you, but Adam has no female. That is bizarre to me. That says something. Adam's job is not to name animals. His job is to take care of the garden, to tend to it. That's his job. God's making him name animals so that the problem that God sees surfaces in the life of Adam. How many times, if you were just Adam, God's thinking, how many times do I have to show him my creative beauty before he says, why don't I have one of those? I want one. And then God says, well, go take a nap. 
and I'll be back. And so this is what he's done. And I've had to ask myself, why is this in Scripture? Why is this moment in Scripture? Why did God do this? Why is he so set on telling us? There's so little that's told to us about the creation of the universe. So little. Almost infinitesimal of this massive project of creation. And yet he tells us this. And this is what I think. I think in this fallen world, when our gender is lying in pieces on the ground, that this passage preserves and elevates the woman to a special place. Because without it, imagine the Bible without it. All we know is, is we, just like the animal kingdom, have a female partner. And I think that that in a fallen world would be reduced to the purpose of the woman is for procreation. And in cultures, male-dominated cultures, all around the world, that's what you see, is that when sin surfaces within our gender and the men get in control, they reduce the value of women to the purpose of raising children or the purpose of procreation. And without this account, God here is telling us that he did something special, that it is not good Man is incompetent without woman. It isn't simply that man can't have children without woman. It's that man is incompetent. He's not good. He does not fully bear the image of God without the woman. So God gives us this moment, this pause in Scripture, to show you that she is so much more than a procreator. She is the fulfillment of the image. And that's what comes out of Scripture. This is not an issue of co-competence. This is not an issue of being each good enough at the same stuff. This is an issue of being complementary, not competent. This is an issue of saying, what is wrong with man? And I think it is not compartmentalized. I think there's something comprehensively lacking in men. I've been in enough locker rooms in my life or fighter squadrons. You go to male-dominated societies and communities and you feel the lack. It's caustic. It's abrasive. Even as a brotherhood, it's lacking. And God looks down and says, I need to comprehensively add something wonderful to this picture so that I can say, in the image of God, man and woman. And that's what's happening. We're not co-competent. We're complementary. And it's just like these glasses you see here. right? I always will stare behind the blue lens. And women, you will always stare behind the red lens and you can't get out of it. And we see the same things, but we see the same things differently. I see these plants, I see them one way, you see them other ways. That's just how it is. It will always be that way. The world says we see them essentially the same way. I say we absolutely don't. There would be no flowers here in the first place if it was up to me. (laughs) I'm glad they're here though. The fact that they're here is better, right? And this should know, next Sunday, we put singleness right after this sermon because I feel so strongly that our gender is not tied to necessarily being married. I benefit from women by the mere fact that there's flowers in this room. I benefit from women because they have an eye for things I don't have an eye for. They have a compassion for things that I don't have a compassion for. And that happens within the bounds of marriage and within the bounds of friendship. And within the bounds of culture and community. It's happening because we're both here together. And it's just like glasses. We each stare behind our filter. But when we understand 
and view it rightly, the image is so much deeper. It's the fact that you see things differently, ladies, than men do, that makes life so deep and so profound. Just enough time. So I've been wrestling with what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And that passes there. Come, let us make man in our image and in our likeness and let them, let's make them to rule over the birds of the air and so on and so forth. There is, to many, a, clearly a triune expression of the Godhead there. Why is God being spoken of in the plural in Genesis 1? That is a big question. To those of us who know Christ and the Holy Spirit who's in us, we cry out, there's the Trinity. The first Trinity sighting in Scripture is right here in Genesis 1. I can't help but notice that just like woman is made of the same essence of man, right? She's made of the same essence. God shows us that. and He takes this hiatus in the story to say he puts man to sleep and he doesn't go and get some more dirt and weave another woman. Out of his essence comes woman. They are of same essence. That sounds highly theological to me. And yet at the same time, they have different roles and positions in this life. And that to me is absolutely triune in nature. That Christ, who is very nature God, of the same essence of God, begotten and not made, of one substance with the Father does not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbles himself for the will of God. And throughout these seven weeks, at the very least, I hope, and that preaches more than I can preach it, so I hope it just sits, and I hope we can appreciate that maybe God is trying to teach us the value of understanding that our position in life is immaterial if our essence is one. We need to be much more mindful of the fact that we share his image than what we do all the same stuff. Amen.